Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Today, it seems as if there are two competing narratives in both America and the world's psyche. One says that we are busy recovering from the pandemic and its resultant shocks, and that that is the driving force behind our daily efforts. The other is that the pandemic changed everything, that we will never look at work, the economy, government, or our own lives in quite the same way. In the conflict between these two ways of looking at the world lies a great deal of the anxiety and fear that is so pervasive today. The pandemic, a personal and collective response to it, forced us to use muscles and strengths and resources that we didn't know we had. And today is really the morning after. Are we going to continue to tone those muscles, build up the strengths that helped get us through, and be a better society? Or are we going to fall victim to the sloth that has been eroding us for years? Some of this is at the heart of a new work by my guest Adam Tooze, entitled Shutdown. Adam Tooze is a professor of history at Columbia. He's the author of the award-winning book Crashed, which was also a New York Times notable book and one of The Economist's books of the year. And his newest work is Shutdown. How COVID shook the world's economy. It is my pleasure to welcome Adam Tooze here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure to be here. When we look at the the damage and and the results of of the shutdown and of the pandemic, are any of the things that happened things that that came about as a result directly of the pandemic? Or were they things that were lurking in the system that were simply brought out and exacerbated by the shutdown and the pandemic? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, you know, so, uh, the, the pandemic itself is, after all, not, you know, it's, it's obviously at some level an act of God. But if we if we if we examine its deeper causes, you could say that it, too, came out of the system. I mean, the best guesses or the two best guesses are either it came out of the, the labs and escaped. Which is still a minority view, I think, and the other one is that it's the result of zoonotic mutation from the you know unfortunate juxtaposition of a big urban society with what's left of wildlife in China. Those are systemic causes too. Um, once that, as it were, was unleashed upon the world through the malfunctioning of China's um, disease reporting system, then it unleashed a shock that is really like nothing we've ever seen before, and the effects of that are long-lasting. Less, in fact, in the rich countries of the world because they were able to cushion themselves, but in the poorer countries of the world, the damage is long-lasting and it's persisting, you know, right now. I mean, if you're a, you know, East African safari operator, you are still struggling for your bare survival at this point. But you're right. Obviously, it also, as it were, dug into pre-existing weaknesses, uh, pre-existing tensions. Uh, you could think of, like, in Europe, the fragility of the governance of the eurozone, or tensions between the West and China or, you know, in the United States, the evident fragility of our political system here. So it's, a, you know, as with any big complex historical event, it's, it's always an interaction of those two different dimensions. One of the things you talk about is that the West really has no systemic ability, no inherent ability to really effectively deal with this kind of large scale crisis. Talk about that. It is, I mean, a a fragility of Western societies, democracies that we that we don't have, you know, powerfully intrusive surveillance apparatuses, certainly not from a centralized government point of view in in most aspects of our lives. We don't have the infrastructure of a 
communist party system spread out throughout our societies. And so, yes, to a degree, we have to we have to improvise our response every time. I mean, you can think of that as a great weakness, but I mean, frankly, we don't know it's any different and it's hard to imagine our societies operating any other way. We, the idea that we could somehow opt for Chinese style structures, I think is completely fanciful. Um, and we do have strengths and, you know, strengths consist in, in all the obvious things. They're, they're innovative societies to a degree anyway, and we're able that by those means to produce a response in the form of the vaccine. Also, if you live in a community like New York, we've seen both, as it were, the, the dark and, you know, and, and the light. We've, we've seen both the collective failure of the spring of 2020, which was grievous and put, you know, New York in the, at the very top of the global mortality rankings. And on the other hand, since then, we've actually seen rather an effective, low-key, um, generally consensual approach to handling the crisis, which also reflects the values and attitudes of a big, you know, uh, independent-minded city like this. But it works. I mean, we have not, unlike many other major cities around the world, certainly in Europe, we haven't had second and third shutdowns. We haven't needed to because the epidemics remained largely under control and then the vaccines arrived and they were promptly applied on a dramatic scale. What have we learned in terms of the importance or lack of importance of of top-down leadership within the West? To what extent did we learn things about how leadership really can shape events? I think it's important. It's difficult for us to talk about Concertedly, because in a sense, you know, as democratic societies, we resist the idea, I think, of top-down leadership. But when it's absent, you really feel it. Uh, and, and, and it was effectively absent in the United States, or if it was present, it was to a large degree disruptive. I mean, obviously, through the sheer constitution of the U.S., the, the, you know, the lead in dealing with crises like this does resolve to the governor level, to the state level, and again, we see, you know, very wide discrepancy across states and it, it aligns to a degree with party lines, but not not exclusively so. So constructive leadership at the state level, banging heads together, you know, insisting on a clear public health message, helping to coordinate hospital systems made a, a very big difference. And, and so we've seen, I think, both ends of this. We've seen the absence, we've seen disruption, and we have, in fact, seen examples of concerted action that in the political sphere we've also seen you know acts of, of leadership of a significant type in more technical areas I, I spend a lot of time because economics is my thing you know talking about the central banks of the world their decision making matters enormously not to immediately fighting the virus but to the conditions under which societies do cope with the economic shocks and they in March, after a little hesitation, a little bit of foot dragging, nevertheless, by the second and third week of March, they're doubling down on a gigantic response, um, which, which, which was a, a, you know, a necessary, not a sufficient condition, but necessary condition for us coping with the crisis. What was the broader impact, as you see it, with respect to globalization, which was already coming under some pressure before the pandemic and, and the impact on the world of the globalization? Yes, I think it's important to differentiate between different movements here. I mean, we, we've seen an unprecedented shutting off of global connections. I mean, it's worth remembering that for months on end, it was impossible to travel transatlantically. It was very difficult for people from all over the world to get in and out of each other's countries. This is, this is, really, this is really unprecedented in its intensity. Um, there has also been 
um, as it were, a plateauing of globalization rather than a retreat. I think it's fairer to say a sort of plateauing. And that's been a feature of the world economy really since the 2008 crisis, the, the periods of really kind of go-go growth, which characterized the 90s and the early 2000s, I think are, are, are long gone. And on the other hand, there have also been dimensions of sort of not exactly globalization, but at least global cooperation and communication. And, and you know, most striking is something like um, the vaccine effort, which was the result of you know, the sequencing of the vaccine was originally done in China and the data was put online by brave scientists who simply disobeyed orders uh, and enabled the global science community to focus on developing the vaccine. But I don't think we should underestimate other, you know, more mundane things like like the prevalence now of Zoom communication and the ease with which we, you know, can see and talk to each other all over the world at basically zero cost. And And that, I think... It does actually offer you know the means of a, a new type of globalization um both in you know academic life um, I, I did a series of seminars with colleagues in south africa that i might not otherwise have done um there's a whole network of 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 condition of communication like that that i think is to you know we've, we've been our imagination has been spurred we've had to come up with ways of reaching out to each other what is your sense of how long it's going to take us for the dust to settle, to realize both the pluses and minuses from this and have them become part of, of, of our daily existence, essentially? I think the first and crucial thing to recognize is that, you know, we're not done with this pandemic. If you, if you look globally, mortality is still high. And only a matter of weeks ago in our own country, in the United States, 2,000 people were dying every single day of this disease. And, and the, the, the great fear has got to be that because the rate of infection is still so elevated, you know, that, that we spawn a, a variant which is even more deadly and even more infectious than Delta. And so 2022 is even worse than 2021. And, and that is, you know, that's the most important thing to say at this point. And I think the beginning, the, the, the fact that this conversation about the aftermath of the, of the pandemic is already beginning, it, you know, that's a sign, I think, of our failure to grasp um you know the seriousness of the situation that we're in and uh, this is not a criticism of you I've, i you know I, I find myself sliding into this conversation these sorts of thoughts all the time and in a sense you know publishing a history book which which packages the events and the experience <laughs> as though they were over you know it's not helpful to this cause in a way because because we're not we're not out of this if we are you know in the particular bits of the world that we're in, privileged enough to live in communities that are no longer massively disrupted, then that is good fortune. And if we are through the vaccines now personally safe, that too. But half the world's population hasn't even seen a vaccine yet. And th- and there is two parts of this. There's the practical and reality-based part, where a thousand people a day are still dying. And then there is the psychological component, which people are adjusting to, which where they say it is over, where, where that is sort of a prevailing sentiment out there. And the degree to which these two things are in conflict seems to be another problem that's lurking out there. I completely agree. And on the one hand, you know, one wants to celebrate the human capacity to sort of forget, basically, uh, and deny to an extent, because, you know, our, our desire to get back to our former lives um, is, is resilient, Um and, uh, you know, my wife's in the travel business and her firm was totally paralyzed, obviously, for two years. And 
She's got an entirely full booked roster of trips in 2022. And, you know, uh, I, I, I feel nothing but good about that. But on the other hand, we all know, I think, in the back of our minds lurks a new sense of fragility. I think that at least, uh, I think, has remained, right? If we are able by looking at the present and the immediate future to convince ourselves that we are back where we were before the crisis hit, I don't think that we are going to easily lose the sense of fragility. After all, if we did have to cancel everything next year, it will be the third year in a row that we'd have to have done that. So it would not be, it would no longer be the novel shock that it was the first time around. There is an interesting conflict that is going on there too. On the one hand, there there are so many people that want to say things are not the same since the pandemic. Things are not the same since the shutdown. They don't want to go back to the office, commutes different. I mean, there's just a lot of things people want to be different in their lives. And yet at the same time, there's this overwhelming sense that seems to wash over us every day of people wanting things to be back the way they were. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very interesting experiment in in, in our consciousness, right? It's, it's, it's precisely because we, it, it reflects the fact that we went through this completely unprecedented experience, that we're even posing this question, that you and I are discussing, are we back to normal? Presupposes, of course, that for a long period of time, we all know that we absolutely weren't. And, and I think that's, as it were, what this book is trying to bring home and recall is that extraordinary moment in March and April 2020 when the whole world had stopped. You know, it was as though, you know, literally everything could come to a standstill. Wherever you were on the planet, everyone was going through the same experience of discovering what it was like to spend days on end living at home, to barely go out, to consider seriously whether you should go shopping for groceries. Like, it was, it was a, a truly extraordinary experiment in a, in a completely new way of life. And yes, I agree. Of course, there was this desire to get back to to the previous reality. But in some ways, the more surprising thing is that we have to pose the question at all. I don't remember ever asking, you know, up to <laughs> March 2020, like, are things normal again? <laughs> like, that wasn't a question that we had. And, and now I agree, we do. And we, we are, of course, absolutely drawn to the idea, you know, can I go and see the net? You know, can I go and see the, you know, should I go and see the new James Bond? Like, <laughs> I'm English, you know, I'm English dude. I've not missed the James Bond in my entire life. <laughs> Should I, should I, should I go and see this film, or should I wait? Should I wait till it, you know, appears on on the small screen? There is a kind of, uh, it's almost global sense of PTSD that the world is still suffering from. Yes, I think that's about right. I think that that for me captures it. Um, and I think I, I happen to I happen to you know be closely attached to a community in the Bahamas that was devastated by Hurricane Dorian in 2019. And it's really interesting um, being, you know, in touch there regularly there. Uh, um, it, most of the time, the people who survived that, that, you know, even more devastating shock, their lives appear completely normal. Like, they, you know, they carry on. Um, but come the anniversary, the 1st of September, and come a major electric storm with lightning and thunder, and the next day you see people wandering around the island obviously in a state of shock, badly shaken up, barely having slept with the jitters. So if you've been in a community that's actually experienced a natural disaster like this, 
the the memory process, the trauma is absolutely not linear. Like most of the time, yes, we go back to this normal mode, but there's also this other memory that's triggered in quite unpredictable ways. In Shutdown, you also talk about China's response to all of this and the way this played out in Chinese society. Talk a little bit about that and, and what we can learn from watching that. I mean, one thing I think to reckon with in future is that they didn't have our 2020. I mean, that's in, 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 long, in a longer term horizon, that may turn out to be one of the more striking things is that they, they went through a lockdown process, uh, but it was very brief. You know, and by the end of February, their regime is already pushing hard for them to return to normal. So their 2020 was much more normal than ours in everyday life terms, in terms of, you know, going about their everyday business. I have students who uh, took jobs in China um, um, in the course of 2020, and they described this process of coming out of the crazy West, going through a two-week quarantine period, and then emerging into a world which, though Chinese and very alien in that respect, was in other respects far more normal than the place that they left in Europe or the US. So that is, I think, going to be an abiding reality. Their history has been more linear than ours. Their shock has, was less intense. But early on, I think it's crucial not to underestimate how severe it was, because though they have appeared, you know, in retrospect, to have won the pandemic, to have been the people who managed it best, that's, of course, not what it looked like in January. It was by far and away the most severe failing of public policy, probably, in, that the Chinese regime had suffered since the beginning of the reform period, well, at least since 1989 and the Tiananmen Square uh, protests. And they were struggling to keep a lid on, on public opinion. There was you know, mass protests online that they were having to repress. And then the economic shock delivered by their version of the, of the shutdown was devastating. And again, they've done a good job of covering this up. But we think probably that unemployment amongst the huge army of migrant workers that make up such a large part of the construction workforce, the service sector workforce in the cities, was running at, you know, nationally, they had unemployment of only over 20%. So even worse than our crisis. Um, and this is, we have to remind ourselves, China is, you know, this huge economic success story and its big modern cities are, you know, on a par, in fact, in many ways, far ahead of us in the West. But um, 600 million Chinese get by on very, very low incomes. And this was actually brought to the forefront of discussion by Prime Minister Li Qiang, uh, you know, who then had to be silenced by the regime because he was saying, look, we have to take seriously how, how you know, long COVID, if you like, is affecting Chinese society, because those people, those 600 million, they don't work in the shiny office blocks and the new businesses. They are casual laborer. They're, they're in the informal sector. They work in small private um, firms, businesses, shops, you know, um, takeaway outfits and so on. And they were they were really suffering a very severe crisis. Um, so but if you like, it's our failures that have turned this into a success for Xi's regime. If, if we had done better, um, this would be a huge trauma and problem for them too. Is there anything that we can learn or take away from their experience that would be positive for us? Well, I mean, I think um, my general point with regard to China would be not so much that we need to learn from them, but we do need to learn about them. I mean, the crucial failing in February of 2020 is that we exoticized this. You know, this was their problem, a Chinese problem that was going to be handled by Chinese means with a Chinese regime that was authoritarian and was going to do its thing. 
And instead, what we should have been saying is, you know what, if they're shutting off Beijing from Wuhan, two huge cities, just like New York, London, LA, well, then we're going to have to do the same thing. In fact, we need to do it now because the same airports that connect Wuhan to Beijing, the same airlines, fly into all our cities too. And that was the failure of imagination that was absolutely pivotal to this entire crisis. I don't think in general there are many lessons to be learned for Western politics, society, culture from China's very different politics, society and culture. We should accept those differences, in my view. There's no alternative in any case. They, they, They are a law unto themselves and absolutely properly so and a very, very powerful force in world affairs. Uh, um, but um, emulation is not really something that is reasonable for us to to anticipate or expect, but um, knowing about them, being aware of what's happening there, following closely events there and trying to figure out the implications for us, how we are geared, you know, cogged into a relationship with them, that, that's, that's absolutely imperative. Talk a little bit about the economic resiliency, particularly of, of equity markets since all this. I mean, certainly if one looks at the market since March or, or February, March of 2020, it's pretty amazing how successful it's been and how awash in money the system is. Yeah, I mean, and that's an effective policy. Um, I mean, it's difficult, of course, to counterfactualize about how things might have turned out. But uh, we, I think, probably would have suffered a a gigantic financial heart attack in the spring of 2020 if it had not been for truly gigantic action on the part of the central banks. Um, And and if you look at the course of equity markets, they turn in the the last week of March 2020, and they turn as it becomes clear that the Fed is really going to do everything that it takes to revive the financial system because the last thing that we needed on top of the pandemic and the derangement of American politics was a was a financial heart attack as well. And the equity markets are smart. They're very, very tightly wired. There's a you know, spectacular amount of intelligence and you know, observational capacity concentrated in those markets for obvious reasons because trillions of dollars are at stake. And as soon as the message was clear from the monetary authorities and as soon as Congress had passed the CARES Act, the giant stimulus program, um, the markets just pivot, turn on a dime, and so all of the smart money bets one way, and then it becomes a momentum trade because you know the market is moving, so the smart thing to do is to move with it, uh, and that's that's what we've been living with ever since. And, it, and on the one hand, you know, it, it was absolutely necessary, um, and for the top 10% of American society who own 80%, 80% of those equities, it's of course been a giant blessing. Um, but it has also, uh, you know, divided American society between those who do have that stake in those financial markets, which have been, you know, the privileged recipients of all of this stimulus, and the vast majority of Americans who may imagine perhaps that they have some stake in the S&P 500, but, but you know, in any material sense, really don't. Um, and as a result, you know, there are there is of course a pulling apart, a further pulling apart of society. One of the things that that you talk about, though, is that when you look at the big picture, it widens the imagination as to what's possible economically, and that that is a lesson from all of this. It is. I mean, we we're. I mean, and you, it absolutely is an invitation to think constructively, to think imaginatively of what we what we might do. I mean, what we've discovered is that if we really want to we can put the entire economy, or very large parts of it anyway, on some sort of life support. And we didn't know that we could do that. Um, 
And we've also discovered that in extremis, if we have to, in a situation like that, we can borrow giant amounts of money without there being a catastrophic increase in interest rates. Um, and those are powerful and they ought to be empowering, you know, realizations. I mean, what we've I've also, of course, discovered is that you have to you have to figure out good things to spend that money on. And as we know from the negotiations which are going on in Washington right here and right now, you also have to actually agree to do it. So at the same time, as you like, as we have overcome hang-ups uh, and imagined limitations uh, about what we might be able to finance and pay for, we've run straight into the constraint of, well, are we technically able to do it? Are we technically able to deliver effective vaccines? Are we technically able to you know, organize systems that enable us to work while socially distanced? And on the other hand, the political constraint, can we actually agree and cooperate with each other to do those things, which we are able to afford to do, but we would need to agree to do them. There does seem to be this pervasive fear, though, this sense that, yes, we did these things that pulled the, the markets back from the brink and that, that it provided survival in a very difficult time. But, gee, let's not ever have to do that again. Even though we see that it worked, we don't want to try that again. It's too dangerous. Well, I mean, I think you have to judge, don't you, what your priorities are. And we did it in 2020. And there was, in fact, a broad base of support, at least for the first phase of stimulus, just about enough to get the second deal passed in December. Remember the one at the very end of the Trump presidency. We did that for very concrete, for serious reasons. Tens of millions of Americans were facing absolute disaster in social and economic terms. And at those moments, it's evidently worth laying out the money. It's evidently worth the political, you know, spending the political capital to get those kind of deals done. And America is not a polity that, you know, easily agrees to do anything. So if we are able to concert ourselves, that tells you something about the seriousness of the situation that that we're in. And so then, you know, this is a judgment call about what you actually think we're up against and how serious you think those challenges are. And obviously, you know, there is broad backing in American society right now to spend, say, $755 billion on the Pentagon and national security. Um, there's an agreement on that. That's a huge amount of money. That's as much as, you know, wild-eyed progressives and leftists would like to spend on things like social care, welfare, rethinking America's infrastructure and, and climate, round about the Bernie Sanders program, a couple of hundred billion dollars short, but not far off, right? And we all, I mean, there is, we may not all agree, but there is a very broad spectrum of opinion backing that giant national security bill um, because we judge it to be an urgent priority. So it's a question really of what your, what your priorities are. But one of the things we've learned is that if you were to be serious about remedying poverty in the United States, if you just wanted to ensure that everyone in America really had enough cash in their pockets and children didn't go hungry, we know what to do, which is send people checks. And the fact that we don't do that and instead spend $755 billion on the Pentagon is a pretty clear statement of what our priorities are. That kind of security matters against China or whatever. And that other type of security or insecurity that faces the hard of you know, the, the 10, 20, 30, 40 million Americans who really really struggle every day to get by, they're not our priority. If they were, we would allocate spending differently. So you're absolutely right. There are, there are trade-offs to be made here. And it becomes, if you've removed this 
financial constraint, it becomes a pretty unsparing test of what you actually care about. But I guess the other element, though, that that enters into the equation is the competence element. You have this, you know, the wonderful quote, anything we can actually do, we can afford. I guess the do is the question mark in there, whether or not we have the, the competence to do it, even if we can afford it. Yes. And that, of course, is the argument around something like poverty often. Like we don't do it because we don't really know how or we've tried previously to raise up those in American society who are worst off, and it's failed. And so you retreat in a kind of resignation. Um, so then, you know, the argument would be, well, what about the children? The children, you know, are just the hapless victims of whatever social dysfunction is going on, surely. So, yes, that, that issue is absolutely central. And it could be something as, as it were, complex technically, but in a sense crystalline in its simplicity. We need a vaccine that works against this coronavirus. Tell us how much money you need. Go to it and we'll start a dozen labs and half a dozen big pharmaceutical firms. Mission is called this mission-orientated economics. This is what we need. We'll throw all the necessary resources at it. That's one type of problem because it's quite, you know, it's neatly defined. We need something that will capture carbon. If you really, really need it, go for it. You know, any sensible research proposal in that line, that will be one way of thinking about this, how we shift this constraint. When you're talking about super complex, deeply entrenched, deeply historic social problems, that that question of how we actually do it, how do you improve public education in the United States? (laughs) The the problem is really not whether we can afford to do it. I mean, the question is, how how do you do it? Um, and and so I agree with you absolutely. There's the political side to this, and then there is, as it were, the recalcitrance of the gap between our intentions and our ability to deliver on them. And inside that is the question of delivering through the public sector or the private sector. Absolutely, all of those are key choices. And the decision to go by the public sector is, you know, this is a public good. We shouldn't necessarily be pricing this. This is a, a traditional or appropriate role for the government. And the private sector, what is generally speaking, more of a gamble. It's, you know, we offer the right incentives. Some bright spark will, you know, flash and somebody will come up with some innovative, innovative solution or be, just be incentivized to figure it out. And both of those have, you know, their merits as solutions. I don't think there's any reason to be dogmatic about it one way or the other. Um, they both also have distributional implications, though. Who gets what? Who ends up wealthy? Who doesn't? And we need to think through the entirety of the, you know, all of the trade-offs there holistically. But say Operation Warp Speed was a case in point, right? Where it's a mixture of government money, military bureaucracy in part, believe it or not. And then private firms, some very big like Pfizer, some very small like Moderna, some transatlantic uh, like the funding for, you know, the German firms and the European firms that were involved in, in Operation Warp Speed. And I think the question is, was it large enough? You know, and were the benefits and the costs appropriately distributed between between the taxpayers on the one hand and the private companies that were involved on the other hand? And and it's a very it's a very good example, I think, of the Janus based quality of this because it's on the one hand an absolute triumph, an extraordinary, extraordinary miracle, and the fact that this worked in Russia and China as well is is just doubled that. And on the other hand, also kind of a lamentable failure to actually solve this problem at the global scale. And finally, you talked about this earlier as this kind of giant experiment in so many ways that we've all been engaged in. 
How long do you think it will be before we can look back on this and, and, and really have a better picture of what worked and what didn't and what the experiment really was all about? How long is it going to take, given how fast the world moves today and how fast things change? I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that question. For me, you know, the final judgments can't begin until the epidemic is over, and it's absolutely not over. Um, so every judgment, judgment that we make until the overall infection rate globally and the death rate is well down is, is provisional, and this book is intended as nothing more than a provisional kind of stop take of the first 12 months of the epidemic. Um, but we won't, and we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're entitled to draw any conclusions. Again and again, we've seen the fronts reversed, right? First, America was failing really badly. Then with the vaccines, it did much better. And in Europe, you've seen the opposite kind of reversals happen with Germany doing well in the first stage and then really failing quite badly in the second wave, slow to roll out the vaccines now, however, more vaccinated than the United States. So it's going back and forth, back and forth, um, we should be taking stock as we go along. We won't arrive at any conclusive settlement of this until it's over, and, and we're just not there yet. Adam Tooze, his book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Adam, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for the great conversation. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.